Good morning, Mosaic Church. We are so glad you're here to worship with us today. If you're new to Mosaic, we are so glad that you're here with us. As a church, Mosaic exists to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, if you'd like to get connected to the life of our church through community groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve, you can text the word Mosaic to 97000 and we'll follow up with you this week. Just as a reminder, we will have our annual end of year budget meeting this week on Thursday evening, and you can find the details to that in the announcement section of our church app. We're doing something new this year in that the meeting will be virtual so that anyone can tune in from home and not have to worry about another in-person meeting in an already busy season. As always, we strongly encourage all partners of Mosaic, as well as those who are considering joining Mosaic, to hear about where we're at financially and how that impacts our next year together as a church family. Numbers are not everything, but they help tell the story of our church, as well as inform us as to what faithfulness should look like as we continue on in mission together. And now, as we get ready to worship through singing, we just want to remind you that children are always welcome with us in service. We also have a kids ministry for kids birth through fifth grade, where they will have a time of worship and gospel-centered Bible teaching that is age appropriate, as well as a nursing mother's room just outside the lobby should little ones get hungry or restless. Again, we're glad you're here today. Let's worship Jesus together. All right, well, hey, good morning. My name is Tad Anderson. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Mosaic Church. And uh, once again, on behalf of our church, we're glad that you are here this morning to worship Jesus with us. Uh, before we get into the message this morning, I'm going to run through uh, our holiday schedule just one more time in its entirety. Um, the first thing that is coming up really has nothing to do with the holidays other than it just has to happen during the holidays. It's still important. It's our 2023 budget meeting. It's going to happen this coming Thursday, uh, the 15th. It will be virtual at 8 p.m. via Zoom, uh, since the pandemic ensured that we all know how to use Zoom now. So no one here can be like, oh, I didn't know how to. Yes, you did. All right. So um, <laughs> uh, it might be awkward, but you knew how to use it. You might not know how to use the mute button. Like some people don't. But anyway, <laughs> Uh, and with the help of our bookkeeper and finance team, I'm, I'm going to do my best to uh, help you understand where we are financially at the end of this year and help us to see together what that means for next year. I always want to clarify, finances are not everything to us, but they are important markers of how we are doing. A good friend and mentor of mine always says, numbers start a conversation and so uh, if you are a partner with Mosaic, you are definitely expected to tune in to that conversation. If you are considering making Mosaic your home church, then you are encouraged to join us as well because we always want the financial aspect of things to be open and transparent to anyone who wants to be a part of our church family. And uh, what we'll do is this, we'll put, like Tristan said, uh, we'll put a link in the announcements section of our app uh, that will allow you to view the meeting. You never want to put those things out publicly. Crazy stuff happens there. So um, on Thursday, as we're getting closer to that, the, the link will appear in the app, and you can use that to tune in uh, when the time comes. Overall, uh, the meeting should not take longer than uh, about an hour, depending on how many questions there are. So if we've got an inquisitive bunch, it may go a little over, but that's okay. 
Um, the next thing will be our kids' Christmas program. That is next Sunday during service. It's going to be great. They've been practicing for several weeks now, uh, and it's been precious, so I'm really looking forward to that, one of my favorite services of the year. We also have uh, our, our annual Christmas Eve Eve gathering. That's going to be on Friday, the 23rd, uh, at 6 p.m., and uh, that's going to be just a very celebratory service. I will do a, um, a scaled-back sermon, not as long, uh, because all of our kids will be in here with us, but we will have Christmas treats and a time of fellowship and things like that uh, following the service. So it's going to be a good time celebrating uh, Christmas together. We also uh, are going to have a Christmas Day service uh, on a very uh, fluctuating interval every several years. Christmas actually falls on a Sunday. Uh, and so if you are in town and you are able, then you are invited to come and worship with us at the normal time of 10 a.m. That'll be a shorter service than usual, but it'll be a, just a worship service there on Christmas. And that's, that's our holiday schedule. So uh, take note of that. It is on social media. It's on the app. If you have questions, uh, feel free to ask any of our leaders or your community group leader or, or someone, and we'll, we'll let you know. So, all right. We are uh, on week two of our yearly Advent series. Uh, we've titled it, Come All You Unfaithful. And if you missed last week, I began by explaining that Advent is the English version of the Latin term Adventus, which means coming. It's a translation of the, the Greek word parousia, which occurs in the New Testament over 20 times, the, more, the majority of which are eschatological references or end times references um, that reference the return of Christ or his second coming. And so Advent is a season of expressing awe and wonder at the incarnation of Christ, the reality that Jesus, the Son of God, came in human flesh and dwelt among us, both fully man and fully God, in order to secure our reconciliation with God through his perfect life, his atoning death, and his triumphant resurrection. And so during Advent, believers in Christ take time to behold the wonder of the first coming of Christ, as well as to stir their hearts together uh, in longing for his second coming. So uh, Advent is an old Christian tradition. And one of the reasons we, we choose to celebrate it and talk about Christmas for the entire month of December is because a huge theme of Christmas is waiting. As kids, if you can remember back, it always used to seem like it just took forever uh, for Christmas to arrive. And so there was just so much kind of uh, giddy anticipation as you counted down the days. And as an adult, I don't know about you, uh, maybe there's something wrong with me, but for me, uh, that anticipatory spirit of the season that was once so natural really begins to fade. And it feels like Christmas can just come and go very quickly. But celebrating Advent is a great way to both retrieve and redeem that sense of anticipation as we join so many of the Old Testament saints before us who were, they were long awaiting the revealing of their Messiah. And now uh, that we know who he is and how he has saved us, we have entered into a long season of waiting ourselves as we long for his Return. So spending uh, every day for a month considering this reality and the great gospel truths that surround it is just a great uh, practice for us to be in as believers. So that's why we do this. And there are so many facets to Advent, uh, but this morning we're going to discuss the virgin birth. Because I think that while most Christians would say 
that they know Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and that it's, important, it's an important part of our faith, uh, for some reason, they might not be able to actually tell you why that is. So I want to spend our time together making that clear. Not only why the virgin birth is important doctrinally, but also practically. Okay, uh, so with that, I want us to read the two key texts about the virgin birth and the gospel uh, accounts of Matthew and Luke, and then we'll uh, pray and then we'll talk about it. So let's go uh, Luke's gospel first in chapter one. Here's what it says It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's jump to Matthew. Matthew 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Thank you for this time of Advent worship together this morning as the body of Christ, singing songs about the wonder of the incarnation of Christ. And now as we turn to discuss the amazing truth of the virgin birth, would you be with us and help us to see how glorious and important of a truth it is to our faith? I pray that as we behold it, this message might cause us to slow down just a bit more to enjoy the anticipation of this season, knowing that we are not ultimately waiting for our family to come in town or for a holiday road trip or for a certain gift, or for some 
time off of work, those are all good things. But God, we are waiting for our Savior. He has already come once in the most miraculous way, and we believe and know that he will come again in an even more amazing way the second time to complete our joy and fulfill our eternal hope. We pray all of this in his beautiful name. Amen. All right. Well, um, in, in A.D. 325, the emperor Constantine convened the historic church council of Nicaea, uh, which was the very first ecumenical council. More than 300 Christian bishops came from all over the ancient world to, ce- to sorry, not celebrate, but to debate the mysterious nature of the Trinity, which was one of the early church's most uh, intense theological debates. And in the council meetings, the bishop Arius from Egypt argued forcefully for his position at great length while the other bishops respectfully heard him out. His view was that Jesus Christ was created and finite, and thus that he did not share the equal divinity of God the Father. But as Arius continued in the defense of his view, there was one particular bishop who was becoming more and more agitated. And finally, when he could no longer bear to hear an attack on the doctrine that he believed was an essential first-tier gospel issue, the outraged St. Nicholas got up crossed the room, and slapped Arius across the face. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) The council of bishops were so shocked by the outburst that they put jolly old St. Nick in jail for the rest of the time that the council was meeting. But eventually they determined that while St. Nick's violent actions were not justifiable, His tremendous passion for the divinity of Christ was understandable. And so Constantine had him released and reinstated as a bishop. And the council finally settled on this language for the Nicene Creed that they developed together. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, and of one essence with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became Man. So as you can probably tell, much of that language that they, they settled on, it just comes right from the birth narratives of the Gospels that we already read just a few moments ago. But I wonder if you see the connection between St. Nicholas's anger over the divinity of Christ and the virgin birth, because the two are, are really intertwined. You see, The virgin birth is central to Christmas and the Christian faith because it is a critical component of the gospel and the hope of our salvation. 
Pastor and author John MacArthur states it plainly this way. He says, Mary's virginity protected a great deal more than her own moral character, reputation, and the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. It protected the nature of the divine Son of God. Jesus had to have one human parent, or he could not have been human and thereby a partaker of our flesh. But he also had to have divine parentage, or he could not have made a sinless and perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And so this is the connection. For Jesus to be our perfect Savior, he could not be merely human. And as crucial as his divinity was, he also couldn't be only God. In order to die and to rise again, he had to have both natures. He had to be the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. And this is why during Christmas, we celebrate the virgin birth. It was miraculous, yes, but it wasn't just a miracle for miracle's sake. It was God's wise and totally intentional plan to give us the hope of salvation from the very beginning. Okay. So let's take the rest of our time this morning to behold the virgin birth by discussing its more practical relevance to our faith. I want to share three points for us to savor that flow directly out of the virgin birth. For the first one, I want, to, I want to jump back to something that was said in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. He said, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Get this, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is past tense. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, so Matthew is reminding us, okay, that the virgin birth of Jesus was not something that God came up with in the final hour, that he needed you know, a couple thousand years to, to marinate on and, and figure out and, and, and orchestrate. The, the prophecy of Isaiah that Matthew references, that, ter- that took place 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. And so um, this was something that God had predetermined well in advance, since before the foundation of the world, to be exact. But uh, from this reality, we see that God is sovereignly able and graciously willing to keep his promises to us. Okay. This, is, this flows right out of the virgin birth. God is sovereignly able and graciously willing to keep his promises to us. In fact, uh, God had been making many promises about the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus, even further back than that reference in Isaiah. And your notes, I've got several reference texts for you to go back and read later if you'd like. That's in the app, the notes there. Um, I, I won't read all of them this morning for sake of time, 
But each of them is a separate instance where God uniquely foreshadowed the work that he intended to do via the incarnation of Christ. Okay? So the verse reference is in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is where God counts the patriarch Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. He makes a covenant agreement with him for him to be the the father of many nations. Perhaps you've read this or or heard this. And uh, to make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the night sky, right? And so uh, Abraham, at that point, when God makes this promise, uh, he was very advanced in age. And he did not even have one son at that point. And so he asked God how he could know that he should believe this promise, <laughs> that he would be the father of many, many nations and have all these offspring, right? He's like, I don't even have a kid. How, how, can I, how can that be? And so God gives a seemingly strange, and if you don't really understand the, the covenant-making traditions of antiquity, which I don't expect that you do, uh, a very cryptic vision to Abraham. You can read this in Genesis 15. He instructs Abraham to take several sacrificial animals and to cut them in half, okay? And then to lay them out on the ground, right? The two halves across from one another, to lay them out on the ground with a a pathway uh, through the halves, if you can kind of envision this. And when Abraham has the vision, he sees, God gives him this vision, he sees a flaming torch pass through the pathway between the animal halves. So you're like, yeah, this is a little weird. Um, In in ancient times, this was a practice that that people who made covenants with one another would participate in in order to show the seriousness of their commitment to keeping the promise they were making. It, It was like saying, If I don't keep my promise, let what has happened to these animals happen to me. You tracking? You following that? This was much more common in the ancient world. But the strange part of it is, you're like, it's already strange. here's, Here's the strange part, actually. The strange part is that usually both parties who are making this covenant would pass through the pathway. Right? But when you read this, this text, God does not require Abraham to walk through the pathway between the animals. Instead, the flaming torch represents God himself walking between the animals, foreshadowing how even though God's people would not be able to faithfully keep their covenant with God, Jesus would come in human form to bear the curse of the covenant for them and to give them the blessings of the covenant without their needing to do anything except trust him. Okay, And so even this far back, hopefully you see the connection here, even this far back in Scripture, Genesis 15, God was saying... Not only am I sovereignly able to save you, I am graciously willing to do whatever it takes. Okay. Later, 
as we move along in the Old Testament. In Exodus 12, we see God give instructions to Israel just before he delivers them from slavery in Egypt. This is probably a more familiar story to you. Listen to what he says to them through Moses. I want to read you some of this passage. Exodus 12, and this is in the app as well if you want to follow along, but it says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So once again, here we see a foreshadowing of the salvation that God was going to provide through his son, Jesus, who would be the Lamb of God, if you will, born to take away the sins of the world, who came so that his blood could be figuratively painted over our Lives in order that we might not have to experience the pain of eternal death. This was another time among many, all throughout the storyline of Scripture, where God was reiterating to his people that he was totally willing and totally able to keep his promise to save them. Finally, we see in Leviticus 16, the instructions for Israel's ceremonial day of atonement where the high priest would take two lambs for the entire nation. One of them, and you can read this, one of them the priest would kill as a sin offering for the people, symbolic of the wrath of God being executed on Christ. The other he would lay his hands on, confessing all of the sin of the people, and then he would send that lamb into the wilderness and this was symbolic of the cleansing of Israel and the removal of their guilt. All of their guilt, in a sense, was placed on this lamb, right? This is foreshadowing of, of Christ. Maybe you know the term scapegoat. That's kind of where this comes from here. And so all throughout the Bible, there are even more references like these three to the eventual incarnation and birth of Christ all to reiterate again and again and again and again that God is both sovereignly able and graciously willing to keep his promises to us. Okay. And this is the first practical reason for us to behold the virgin birth this Advent season because it reminds us 
of God's faithfulness to us, as we just sang about a few moments ago. Maybe you've had a tough year this year. Maybe you're wondering what in the world God is doing in your life, why nothing seems to be working out exactly the way that you thought that it would. I don't know what your struggles are, but Advent is for you. Advent is for you. God is faithful. And as you wait on him, you can trust that. If he was willing to give us his own son, he is more trustworthy than we can possibly fathom. You might feel like you're in the dark on some things right now. But I would encourage you to come into the light of Advent and be reminded that God graciously keeps all of his promises. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second practical consideration that flows out of the virgin birth, we've already touched on it a bit, but it's that there was only one extremely complex and infinitely costly way for us to be saved. The incarnation of Christ. Biblical scholar D.A. Carson said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin and our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so God sent us a Savior. Okay. It would have been infinitely easier to send us any of those other things, wouldn't it? Because our need for a Savior... Well, on one hand, is, is simple. It was also incredibly complex when it came to the how part, <laughs> to the logistical part of how God would do that. It involved a method that no one other than God himself could conceive of or accomplish. In allowing a virgin to bear a child by the power of the Holy Spirit... And not only is this complex in its reasoning that came from the mind of God himself, but it was infinitely costly, as it would require the divine Son of God to stoop to the level of his creation and retain the appearance of their humanity for the rest of eternity. Right? This was an unimaginable sacrifice, and it was the only way for us to be saved. Completely by the grace and the mercy of God and nothing of our own efforts, okay? Which is why Jesus presumes the highest level of exclusivity when he declares, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because there was no way for him to be the Savior we needed except through the virgin birth, 
There is no other way for us to be saved except through new birth in him. Okay? And so as Christians, we ought not only affirm the virgin birth, we ought to treasure it and behold the, the wonder of it during the Advent season. It is inextricably tied to the gospel that we exult in all year long, that salvation can be had by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The virgin birth undergirds this fundamental truth of the Christian faith. Without the virgin birth, there could be no perfect vicarious life. There could be no atoning death on the cross. And there could be no empty tomb. Right? Maybe you're starting to see why St. Nick would hit a guy in the face over these kind of things. <laughs> If Jesus was not conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit and thus fully man and fully God, then our gospel is not good news. But he was. (laughs) He was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is fully man and fully God. And so there was only one extremely complex, infinitely costly way for us to be saved, and it was the incarnation of Christ. Okay. And finally, I'll close with this, perhaps the sweetest reason of all to behold the virgin birth. I've saved it for last here. The virgin birth means there is not a single human experience that Jesus was unwilling to endure in order to become our perfect sacrifice and Savior. (laughs) Not a human single experience. I mean, he's God, but there was not a single human experience that he was unwilling. There's nothing he said, that's below me. That's beneath me. There was nothing he said that to. Right? Hebrews 2 says this, Since therefore the children, that's us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Again, there we are. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This text tells us that Jesus did more than just save us. He became God with us. God with us. Perhaps God the Father could have given Jesus 
an adult human body in heaven and kind of sent him down to simply die quickly on the same day. Kind of an express lane, Amazon Prime version of salvation. (laughs) But this is not what he did. Jesus desired to be an empathetic high priest. A savior who could experientially understand all of the frailties of our humanity. And so the divine son of God allowed himself to be born as a helpless infant in a cattle feeding trough. He allowed himself to endure all of the awkwardness of growing up and the the difficulties of doing it in poverty and obscurity. And then as an adult, he allowed himself to feel the pains of intense relational strife, extreme temptation to sin, the grief of loss, betrayal by those closest to him, the shame of public ridicule, the agony of being physically beaten, tortured, and unjustly prosecuted. And finally, he endured the fear and anxiety of feeling the life gradually leaving his body. The virgin birth expresses that God not only loves us, but that he gets us. He gets us. He didn't have to, but he chose to feel all of the intricacies of the human condition that we all feel so that he could be not just our Lord, not just our Savior, but also our older brother who has gone before us so that he can be a perfect counselor and a perfect friend to us as we patiently wait for his return. So, let's behold these glorious truths as we continue on through the Advent season. Beginning now, as we sing together, Come all you unfaithful. He's the Lamb who is given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, come. He is the offering. Come and see what your God has done. Christ was born of a virgin for you. Let's pray. Father, once again, we, we thank you so much for the Christmas story, the, the birth narrative of Christ. And Father, I pray that um, as your people, God, we would not be uninformed that we would be people who understand the word that you have given us. God, it it takes work to trace these themes through the Bible, but it's so much richer when we do, to see the relevance, to see the importance of something like the virgin birth, and not just affirm, yeah, yeah, the virgin birth, but to behold with wonder and awe and worship you. 
because of the miracle of the virgin birth. That was the only way for us to be saved. We thank you for it. I pray that we would spend time, myself included, that we would spend time lingering on that this Advent season and thanking you for the beauty of such a great doctrine. Pray we wouldn't punch anybody in the face over it, but that we would treasure it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.